You go ahead and start recording. We're recording. Yeah, good morning. I am Gene Scott. I'm the president of NC Broadband Matters, and I'd like to welcome everyone to our sixth NC Broadband Matters webinar. This one's entitled The Upload Crisis, something that I think uh, all of us are probably thinking about more and more today. I'd just like to tell you a little bit uh, about our series. If you've missed any of our previous webinars, you can go to our website and they're all there. You can pick and choose or uh, update yourself on all of the ones that we've done previously. In the past, we've had uh, so far about 700 attendees at these webinars, and we're quite happy about the participation that uh, we're getting for these. Uh, our last in-person event was in around April of 2019, and we had over 125 people attend that. But of course, because of the pandemic, everything is now shifted, so we're all doing things virtually. I'd like to just touch on uh, our organization for a moment. Uh, as an organization, our mission is to attract, support, and champion the universal availability of affordable, reliable, and true, let me emphasize the word true, high-speed uh, internet. Uh, you can see our full mission statement, if you like, again at our webpage. One of the goals that we have is to help to educate the public on the need for fiber, the advantages of the technology, what the future holds, and much more. Uh, today, we want to explore the topic of upload speeds, which again is something that I think all of us got hit with very quickly when the pandemic struck early in the spring. And it's something that we're dealing with, whether our children are trying to do their homeworks, uh, homework from home, and do uh, distance learning or whether we've been dispersed and as uh, professionals are working from home now. Just a housekeeping um, statement. Uh, we welcome and actually want you to participate in this webinar. So please give us questions, anything you may have for any of the panelists or anything you would like for us to touch on um, even in the future. If you will list your question by going to the chat function that you'll see at the bottom of your screen, then in the last 30 minutes or so of our presentation, we will address those questions and be more than glad to, to talk for as long as you would like. Uh, today, we have Doug Dawson, who's president of CCG Consulting, who's going to uh, begin our program presentation. And Doug, I'm going to hand it over to you. Very good. Let's see here. All right. Let's see if I can. I don't know how to turn my camera on to the slideshow, so we're just going to do it without my pretty face. So, uh, so today, as, as, as you've been told, we want to talk about the upload crisis. And so, you know, what is the issue? And the issue, Gene already touched upon it. All of a sudden, we now care about upload speeds. And this is really the first time in the industry. Um, in the past, there's always been a handful of, of people who care about upload speeds. I've been doing broadband studies now for, for many, many years. And in every market, I've run into people like photographers, uh, to scientists who work at home, to engineers that work at home, to doctors who work at home. So in every market, there's always been people who cared about their home upload speeds, but they were such a small part of the market that they just never really got a lot of, of attention from the ISPs. 
And those folks, for the most part, have been unable to do the kind of things they want to do. I mean, you know, if a doctor is not on fiber, he's not passing back and forth MRI files from his house. So there's simply not enough bandwidth to do those gigantic files on an upload basis. And so, and so you know, those kind of folks have always been hurting. But all of a sudden, during the pandemic, everybody started caring about it because upload is needed to do all the stuff that we've had to do in the pandemic. And I'll hit a, I'll hit a lot more detailed slide on that here in a minute. But, but you know, every home is now using it. So, uh, and so we're going to talk about those uses for upload speeds. And we're going to talk about how much upload speed a home needs. And, and we may not come to a conclusion. I think we all have different opinions. It's actually something that as, a, as an organization we've been talking about, I think it's being talked about all over the country. Um, you know, we, we need a new definition of how much upload speed people need, and it's not an easy question to answer right now. It's certainly more than what we have is what we know, right? So, um, so you know, the real problem is not, well, let's start from the beginning. First off, anyone on a really slow connection can't even upload at all. So people in rural areas have found out in many cases that they don't have enough upload speed even beyond this Zoom, this Zoom call today. So there, there might be people who are dialing in today because their home broadband connection is not good enough to get on here. Um, so, but, but even, you know, this problem turns out to be everywhere. Uh, people in towns who, are, who use the cable companies have found out they also don't have enough upload speed. And the issue is not that, that they don't have enough upload speed to do this Zoom connection. The problem comes in with simultaneous sessions. And so what we found out is the people who have several adults and children working at home at the same time all of a sudden found out they couldn't do it. And these are people who thought they had great broadband. They may have had a one or 200 megabit download product from the cable company. They've had no problems you know, downloading for the last couple of years. And all of a sudden they found out that they can't work from home at the same time. Um, so, you know, so, you know, and that, Simply, and, and we do interviews and surveys and, and stuff everywhere. I've ta been talking to dozens of communities since the pandemic started, and this is really a universal problem. There's just a ton of people who all of a sudden panic because they, they were sent home to work and it doesn't work to, for them to do that in the way they want to do it. So another big issue is that home upload speeds are a lot slower than what the industry claims, and I'll talk about that a bit more here in an upcoming slide. But but you know, people are, have not been told the truth about what their upload speeds are. Uh, you know, folks watching this might find it interesting why we're talking to go take a speed test just to see what your upload speeds are. I warn you though, that if it's really bad, it may kick you off the Zoom call. So maybe you wanna hold off and do that after we're done here. But uh, again, this is a largely new phenomenon. It's really, you know, it's really started in March. Before that, people didn't really complain about this very much. So let's start with what the FCC says. In, in the 2019 Broadband Deployment Report, that's a report every year that they have to give to Congress to tell Congress about the state of broadband in the United States. Uh, in the very second paragraph of the front of the report, they made a statement that 85% of homes in the US uh, have access to 250 download and 25 megabit per second upload broadband. Um, that number, Quite honestly, you've, we've had other seminars talking about the, the mapping problem. Uh, the 85% number is too high for the 250 megabit download, but it might be 75 or 80%. So it's, it's lower than, than the FCC is claiming, but it's still a, a pretty high percentage of homes 
have at least the capability. If you subscribe to a big cable company, they will probably sell you a 250 megabit or faster download product. It doesn't mean you'll get that speed necessarily, but they'll sell you a product with that name on it. And so that's really what the FCC was supposedly measuring there. But the second half of the equation, they missed by a mile. You know, the 25 megabit upload speeds uh, are, is simply not right. And, and the reason they say that is that all the cable companies and all the ISPs report their speeds to the FCC and they've paid no attention to the upload speeds. And so, the, you know, all the cable companies pretty much universally tell the FCC that they have 25 megabit per second upload broadband, but our company and, and lots of other consultants do speed tests. I've studied entire cities where nobody had 25 megabit broadband upload. They had 10, 12, 15, 20, or even five, but you know, no one in the whole town that we could find hit 25 megabits. So the, so the, the IS, the big cable companies have been exaggerating the claims to the FCC, and, but because they probably market that they have 25. So 25 is their marketed upload broadband speed, but it turns out that most homes have something slower than that, which is why I'm curious about what people on the call today before we're done in the question session maybe can talk about the actual speeds that you're seeing. I know it's certainly slow for me. I have 135 megabit, very steady download speed at my house. My upload speed, <coughs> and I live in Asheville, my upload speed is very constantly at 11 megabits per second. So it's not at the 25 megabits that the FCC thinks the country is sitting at. And that's where the problem comes in. If everybody had 25 megabit broadband, there'd be a whole lot less people complaining about working at home but even in that, at that number, there's plenty of homes who would run into the problem, but, but it would probably be half of what it is today. So, so you know, the, the, the problem is overstated because the ISPs overstate the broadband and then the FCC simply buys everything they tell and they pass it on to the public as gospel when in fact, you know, it's badly misstated. So, so what are the uses for upload? There's a lot today. So when you connect to a school or work server nowadays, almost always, what happens is your computer creates something called a virtual private network, a VPN. And it does this without your knowledge, but it's part of the software that you have in place to connect to one of those two things. Well, so if students go to connect to a school server, you know, they have to go through a, you know, a special, you know, set of, 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 of connections on the web to do that. And when, when that connection is made, it creates a VPN. And all that a VPN does is it carves out dedicated broadband. It may come and say, my, my connection to this school needs at least one and a half megabits constantly. So it goes to the customer and, it, and out of their broadband, it grabs a, is one and a half or two or whatever the size is of megabits. And it sim simply locks that in place. And, and so what happens there now, you know, that amount of upload broadband from that home is now locked up. So when the second person goes to get on, if the first VPN is locked up two megabits, the second home, has whatever's left over to, to grab. The third person has whatever's left over from the first two. And so all of a sudden, you know, when you're sitting there with, with 11 megabits per second, uh, all of a sudden it doesn't take very ma many connections before you use that up. And the fact, the fact is, I'll get to a, a next slide and show you that it doesn't really work that simply. It's not, it's not additive. Unfortunately, it's far worse than additive. But the point is that these connections are dedicated today. And, uh, and, they, and, they, uh, and so they grab broadband and, and it, they don't allow it for any other use. Zoom also, this call today, Zoom tells you on their website that they want you to have a two megabit 
upload speed in order to make this call that we're on today. Now they don't lock it in with a VPN. And so what happens is if your broadband connection is at something less than two megabits, you're gonna have the thing freeze, it's gonna fade in and out, you may get dropped a few times during the call. So Zoom doesn't lock it in with a VPN, but it only works good if you have something around that two megabit per second upload speed. And of course that would be what's ever left over after your kids are on their school server or whatever. You know, what we see is, is kids on school servers do multiple things. They could have the school server to look at homework assignments and they're also expected to be on a Zoom call at the same time. So now they're using two upload streams at the same time. So that's the kind of thing we're seeing. Cloud gaming is a brand new use for upload. Timing couldn't have probably been worse. It's good for the gaming companies, but the gaming companies, three or four of the major gaming companies started converting to cloud gaming right before the pandemic. They started around Christmas of last year. And, and for the gaming companies, this is a great transition because people used to have to go buy or download, you know, giant files in order to play the games. And what's happened now is the gaming companies put those games in, a, in, a, in the cloud in a, in, a, in, a, in a data center somewhere and people actually play in the cloud. So what happens is, you know, the, the, the video and all those and the music and all those great things is no longer sitting on your computer. It's transmitted back and forth to the cloud. Well, that, that requires both an upload and a download stream while you play the games, both for you and the other person playing the games. Uh, the worst possible use for a house is if two people in the same house are playing the game together in the cloud. Uh, it just absolutely ties up all of your broadband. So um, we've always had uploading files. That's the people I talked about earlier, the doctors, the photographers. Photographers want to send gigantic files. Doctors do. You know, professors who work at home often have very large files. You know, engineers, consultants, architects, all, the, all sorts of people who have large files as part of their daily work want to do that. Um, video sharing, you know, um, you know, what we forget is when we're home, most people have their cell phones automatically latch onto the home broadband to use the Wi-Fi. Well, as soon as you do that, when you're sitting there FaceTiming and doing all of those video sharing on your cell phone, that's an upload stream. It doesn't matter that it's coming from your cell phone. Once you log onto your Wi-Fi, it's just part of your home broadband. And so there's actually quite a bit of broadband being grabbed by cell phones that we kind of forget about. So that, you know, unfortunately the school kids are watching their, they're doing their homework on the school server and they're secretly talking to their friends on the, on the cell phones at the same time, double, doubling up their broadband usage. And we know they do that because I have a daughter and I see it all the time. So. Um, a biggie is something called machine-to-machine -machine language, and this has been one of the biggest uses of upload broadband that we all forget about. This is your computer talking to the world behind the scenes. It happens all the time. You know, it, it goes on there and uploads information to apps, and it's always checking to see if you need to upload things. You automatically, for example, uh, upload pictures you take on your cell phone to the iPhone cloud. I mean, your, your computer does a whole lot of stuff that you forget about. There was a really interesting story in the Washington Post, again, right before the pandemic in January, one of the reporters went on vacation out of the country for a month, but he left his computer on and he came back and his machine had used huge amounts of gigabit of data 
which confounded him because he wasn't even there for the whole month. He literally wasn't there one day of the, of the billing period. Uh, so he got a smart computer guy to come over and they found out that this was simply all the apps on his computer uh, sharing with the cloud. And it turns out one of the apps really had gone haywire and just really talked, you know, I think it was Dash, DoorDash, and I think it talked to the cloud over and over and over and used a ton of broadband for him. But this happens to all of us. So a lot of our home broadband usage is being gobbled up. While I'm sitting there on my school server, my work server, my machine, my computer doesn't care. It doesn't do that in non-busy times. It just does it whenever it feels like doing it. So it, it grabs more broadband as well. So all of a sudden we have all of these things happening at the same time and they add up and that's where the problem comes in. You know, that's a lot of uses for a relatively small broadband path. Um, so again, yeah, what's, you, what's needed, the school and work servers typically use one to three megabit dedicated VPNs. That's, that's quite a bit, that adds up pretty fast. Zoom says two megabits. Telemedicine links, which I didn't even put on the last slide, I should have. Telemedicine links are actually usually a little larger than the work server links. Uh, the doctor's softwares just grab bigger VPNs they, because they, they're trying to get the highest quality picture possible in case they ask you to show up you know, a part of their body for them to look at. I mean, if they want to look at a symptom, they want a very clear connection. And so the telemedicine links are grabbing probably the largest VPN links of, of all the software out there. And so, you know, those are all additive. So let's, and, and here's a slide about the machine to machine traffic. It's really gigantic. Um, this slide uh, came from Cisco's uh, IP traffic forecast. This is a report they put out every year. And they're showing that 51% of all web traffic by 2022 will be this stuff. You know, machines talking to each other, not just upload. Remember, there's a lot of download from machines, but today we're really concentrating on the upload side. But, but you know, and it's not just, it's not just our home computers. Work computers do a lot more of this. Work computers connect to the cloud automatically and do all sorts of stuff from the office that, that adds up to this sort of stuff. So it's, it's things that computers are doing without people being involved. And you can see from the categories over on the right, you know, connected home is still over is half of it. So that's the bottom dark blue patch of it. All the rest of that are sort of, you know, work stuff. So, um, so how much do we really need? And that's the hardest question. And so I'm going to talk about it a bit. Mark Boxer is going to be coming on and talking about it a bit. And I don't know that we have a conclusion, except that the answer is a lot more than what we have today. So you can start very simply by adding those simultaneous uses together. So if you want to have two students uh, who each need two megabits and you've got an adult who wants to use two megabits and you've got to figure you need to save one or two megabits for those sort of stray other things like machine to machine language, all of a sudden you're up to eight, eight or nine or 10 megabits, right? So, and that's absolutely the minimum amount that you would need. It turns out that, that web traffic is not that simple. You can't really just add them together because we have something that happens when you do multiple things from your home at the same time called collisions. And so uh, the best way to understand collisions uh, is to go back to the old days when Netflix first started streaming. If you noticed, even if you had a fairly fast broadband connection when, when 
when Netflix was new, you would often fall behind in the traffic. You would often find there would be times when your your screen would pause because because you weren't you know you had run out of the downloaded traffic. And what happens is when when things either come into or come out of your house, at, at your home computers, things collide with each other inside of your own network. And so you know bits each try to get a priority at the same time and and they don't all make it through. And what happens, what happens in the computer world is if, a, if, a, if, if I'm uploading a bit and it doesn't work, I try to send it a second time. And if that doesn't work, I try to send it a third time. And so that's how we add, that's how we add those overheads. Bits get sent more than one time. And so, uh, and that's just automatic. Your computer does that. It's all, every time I send a bit, I actually get a feedback message to say, I got that. If I, if I didn't get that, I send it again, or I might get a message to say, I didn't send that packet a bit, send that packet again. And so what we see is, is that collisions add an overhead. And in fact, that overhead is gonna depend a lot on a given home and the given technology you're using. I've said 10 to 20% here, it could be a lot worse than that, particularly if you're trying to do four or five or six things at the same time. The more things you try to do at the same time, the more collisions there are, the more recent packets there are. And of course that adds to the size of the amount of bandwidth I need because that, you know, I'm not just sending my two megabit upload connection on the side of that, I'm resending packets. And so, you know, that, that's what happens with the network collisions. Inside the home, it's even worse because if everyone in your house is working on Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi adds another 25 to 40% overhead. Wi-Fi is incredibly inefficient today because we only use a handful. There's like three channels for most homes set up on Wi-Fi. So if you have five or six things going on at Wi-Fi, um, it adds a ton of overhead as your, as your Wi-Fi router tries to figure that out. And, and Wi-Fi routers are way worse than the web traffic because what happens there is it treats all traffic equally. So Wi-Fi router will say, here's my two megabit per second uh, connection for my school server, and here's my stupid little home thermostat just trying to send out five little bits to say, I'm good right now, I don't, you know, I don't need to change the temperature, and it treats them equally. And so it'll look at one, and then it'll pause, and it'll look at the other. And when it does that, you actually have problems on the school connection when your Wi-Fi tries to connect to the little teeny tiny connection on the on the uh, on the home thermostat, and so in any given home, uh, we might have a, a dozen devices. Uh, OpenVault just came out with at, the, at uh, just last week with a, um, a a new update on on the state of broadband in the country, and they said that the average home now has over 10 connected devices, and a lot of those things connect at the same time. You know, if someone's watching TV. And, and we have our smartphone turned on while we're doing the school server and and all those sort of things, then they really interfere with each other. That ends up adding typically 25 to 40% overhead. And so now to go back to our simple example, um, if we have, you know, four, two megabit per second things to try to happen at the same time, which would be, you know, two, two kids on a school network, one adult trying to work from home, at least one person making a Zoom call, we have to add 10 to 20% overhead for the web traffic overhead. We have to add another 25 to 40% overhead for the home Wi-Fi. We're really up to 15 to 20 megabits necessary for this stuff to work. 
And what happens if you don't have that much speed, then what happens is the connections get in trouble. So it'll end up kicking, you know, if you, so you, you would add it up to eight and go, but I really need 16. And if you don't have 16, then the Zoom call drops or one of the kids get kicked off the school server. And this is exactly what we're seeing from home. Back to the very first slide, that's what everyone is complaining about. You know, they they have a connection from a cable company. They think they're supposed to have good broadband and they keep getting kicked off of these connections and they don't understand because, you know, they, they just, they, you know, they don't understand that there's not enough broadband there to do all these things at the same time. To make it even worse, there's one more thing that we have to consider, which is the technology used. And, and you know, if you're using a fiber technology, that is the cleanest. There's almost no noise on a fiber technology, so it doesn't add any extra problems to the upload stream. There is more noise, and noise, noise is another way to describe um, another overhead. So this is a third overhead. I described the basic web over noise overhead, which is simply things colliding as part of web traffic to and from your home. I've talked about Wi-Fi inside the home. There's also a technology noise added, and so and so fiber has very low noise. Um, DSL and cable cable modems are next in noise supposedly, and then is, is DSL, and then with a huge amount of noise and problems are are the high the high satellites. Uh, but that's not entirely true because what happens with 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 uh, broadband on your cable modem is the cable companies have decided that years ago when uh, they first set up the uh, DOCSIS 3.0 sp um, standard, which is what allows you know, the broadband at our house, and that was done in 2006, the upgrade in 2006. They set aside the noisiest part of the, of the, of the network in order to make um, upload because no one cared about upload. And so what they use is, is what used to be channels two through five of the cable TV spectrum. Um, a, a cable system is actually, an, it's a captive radio system. We, everyone forgets that, but that's how it works. It's not 100% it's not digital like a fiber system. It's still a captive radio system. And so the cable companies have grabbed the spectrum from five to 42 megahertz, which is at the very beginning of their spectrum band inside that, that captive coax. And that happens to be the noisiest part of the spectrum. And again, if you're if you're my age or Gene's age, and I don't know how many other people on here is age, we can remember the day when we had analog TV. And if you remember, there were times when channels two, three, and four just were a mess. You know, if somebody turned on a blender or a microwave oven or somebody started up a large, even a lawnmower, all of a sudden those channels got fuzzy, right? And that is because those particular pieces of spectrum get interfered with by sort of normal day-to-day -day life stuff. Higher, higher frequencies in the cable network don't get interfered with very much like that. Well, that still happens today. In a, in a cable network, every place where there's a splice you know, on the outside, up on the poles, wherever, or where it comes into your home, that's a place where, where it's called leakage. That's a place where outside spectrum can leak in. And so if you start a microwave oven in your house, that actually will still <clears throat> interfere with, with your cable broadcast, and all that you actually interfere with is the upload speed. So the upload speeds on a, on a coaxial cable network from the cable company have a fourth amount of noise, which comes from this 
once in a while interference from things like microwave ovens and blenders and you name it, right? So all together, um, that adds up to a whole lot of reasons why your upload speeds can not be very good, right? Um, finally, we have an, even an additional factor. You know, I talked about, you know, in my case, I have 11 megabits per second upload, but I may not always be able to get that. And if you ever do speed test, you'll see that the number varies over time. I might get a nine, I might get a 14, I might get an eight. You know, it averages out 11 for me, but it's like, well, how come it goes up and down? And the reason it does is the spectrum is shared for the whole neighborhood. So, you know, one reason I may have trouble making a connection to a school server is if there's a whole lot of other students in the neighborhood are doing the same thing. All, there's a total amount of bandwidth that comes to my neighborhood, which might be somewhere between one and 200 homes. And when that's full, nobody else is getting on. If, if there were enough VPN set up in the neighborhood, the bandwidth would be locked and nobody else would be able to use upload bandwidth at all. That, that would be a lot of students to do that. But the point is that happens. And so that's one of the reasons you see your, your, uh, your, your speed tests vary. That's because that's how it's affected by how other people in the neighborhood are using bandwidth. And right now, everyone's staying home. On my block, I, where I live in Asheville, I think 80% of the people on this block are working from home right now. So we're using the heck out of our upload. <coughs> um, so again, there's just a, you know, a whole lot of things going on that can do it. So. Um, so let's talk about you know some more statistics here. Uh, per Open Vault, and they they track this stuff actually daily, but they also put out quarterly reports. And the latest quarterly report just came out, uh, I think on Friday or Thursday last week. And what they've said is upload speeds right now are 50% high, and this is upload speeds for the whole country. So upload usage is up 58% compared to a year ago before the pandemic. So, you know, we didn't double it, but you know, that's a 60% increase. That's a whole lot more upload that's being tried to be used. They've never reported this number before, but the second bullet point says, uh, the average home now uploads 25 gigabytes per month of upload data. Um, if you would have told a network engineer that number two years ago, they would have laughed at you. That's a huge amount of bandwidth. You know, five years ago, we didn't download that much data in a month. And so, you know, that, that number is just astounding. And that's the reason it's the amount of data that we're trying to push through during a month is just a huge amount of data. And so that, you know, and that sort of speaks to why the neighborhood might be busy. That's an average number for all homes in the United States. And that includes homes who don't have good enough broadband to use upload. So in neighborhoods where there is good, better broadband, that average would actually be higher than that. That's the nationwide average. Um, now download continues to grow. So we know up, you know, this is sort of a way to talk about the fact that we know upload is also gonna grow. You know, you can just see the history here. Again, this comes from Open Vault of just the last couple of years. You know, just back in 2018, the average home was using 215 gigabytes a month of download. And now in the pandemic, we're up to this, this and this third quarter number it's not really for the quarter, that's the, that's the end of September number. So at the end of September, the average home in the US was using 384 gigabytes per month of, of downloaded data, which is, you know, that's almost twice of what was happening two years ago. You know, the same thing is gonna keep happening to, to download, to upload speeds. The fact is, homes are using a lot more bandwidth. We've been on this curve 
believe it or not, since 1980. Bandwidth has been growing at a rate of between 21 and 25% since 1980. That's way back in the days where we had 100 baud computers. I had one of those. It's, you, you stuck your phone receiver in the thing and it did the tweets and the twerps and you got you know, you got a really, really slow connection and, and we, over time, the technology got better and that, and the, the ability has been growing at about 21% a year ever since 1980. And there's no real reason to think it's going to stop. So, you know, I could, this session is not about download, but, you know, I have a dozen reasons why we're going to keep on using that much download in the future and that number is going to keep growing. So, um, this is a snapshot of the whole country, and this is actually includes Canada. And Canada is not unfair to lot lump in here because they actually have a very similar broadband situation to us. I mean, they, you know, they have big cable companies in the city. Their rural broadband is a mess, just like ours is, and so they look very much like us. So there's not, you know, the one place that they do better than us is they actually have much faster 4G networks than we do in the U.S. Uh, for whatever, they have different set of wireless companies there and they've done a better job, but for landline, they look just like us. And so what you can see here, this is exabytes and, and exabytes are trillions of bytes. I mean, it's, it's just a huge amount of data. And this is the monthly amount of, of data that the whole hemisphere, you know, whole Northern America is using. And again, you can just see how much that's growing over time. Um, and so, you know, what it, it works out to a 21% growth uh, in home broadband. It's, uh, cellular broadband's been growing at 36%, and business broadband's been growing at 23%. Uh, it's just, an, so that's the only real reason I put this up here, is to show the amount of growth. There's no reason to think, we're just now starting to measure upload, but there's no reason to think that it won't be on this same growth path. We just don't know, because until the pandemic, I don't think hardly anybody was measuring it, so. Um, again, speeds have been going up too. Just you know, just as an interesting side point, nationwide, you know, the average broadband speed is around 20 megabits per second this year, and if, if you know, most awful lot of homes are below that. So, um, if we look at that download, just you know, just to go forward, you know, it doesn't take too many years till the average home is is uploading a terabit of terabytes of data per month. By 2024, the average ought to get up to those sort of numbers. Uh, and so, you know, that that's the, the tremendous growth is coming. So um, a few things that are interesting. One thing that we have seen during the pandemic is, is literally millions of homes, huge numbers of millions of homes have upgraded because they ran into this broadband problem. They didn't realize their problem was upload, so they went and bought faster download speeds. And it turns out that in many cases, it didn't help them at all. You may upgrade from a 100 megabit cable modem connection to a 200 megabit cable connection, and the cable company might not give you one ounce of extra upload speed for that upgrade. They're gonna give you more download, but they do not automatically give you more upload. And so um, here's the statistics just for the number of people in the US who are subscribing to gigabit has grown tremendously. You can see here from from just you know 2018 to just in the last you know two quarters, it, it's up to 5.6% of all people in the country are now subscribing to, to gigabit broadband. To put these numbers into perspective, you can see in the from the second quarter to the third quarter of this year, uh, the, the nationwide penetration went from 49 to 5.6. 
that, that equates to about 875,000 new homes are now buying gigabit broadband. Uh, so, you know, we're, so the, we're, and we're seeing the same thing for slower broadband. So, um, and so, you know, so, you know, we're seeing people upgrading from to, to 200 megabits and 400 megabits. So it's across the board, millions and millions of people are uploading to the faster speeds to try to solve their upload problem. And unless they're moving, if they move to a gigabit product, it probably fixes it because those customers, even on a cable network, get faster uh, broadband, but mostly the upgrades are not helping all that much. We also now have, we're up to almost 9% of homes that use over a terabyte of data every month. Um, that's a lot of data. The, the, the uh, cable companies and the telephone companies often Right now, most of them are not charging for data caps, but when they start again, they're gonna be loving these numbers because these people are gonna pay another, a lot of these folks are gonna pay another 40 or $50 a month for broadband. We're in the third quarter of this year, 1% uh, of all homes were, are using two terabytes per month of data. So our use of data has just skyrocketed. This is a very interesting slide that comes from our friend, Brian Rathbone, who's been on some of our webinars. And he works for a company called Broadband Catalyst, and and he does speed tests. And, and I'm just showing you this uh, because this is very indicative of what we're seeing everywhere. And this happens. He was hired by the University of Maryland to go look at what the broadband speeds are of all their students who were sent home to work. And of course, they don't all live in Maryland. There was quite a few of them in North Carolina and South Carolina and all these other states, right? Because it's where kids go to school. But what he did was he got all of their addresses and he looked up to see what, what speeds the FCC says these folks could have. As they went home to work, what this shows you that only 40% of University of Maryland students at home had access to 50, 50 or 100 by 100 uh, broadband. Um, and, and because that takes fiber. Those folks, you know, Maryland happens to have Fios. Here in North Carolina, there's, there's a lot of, you know, Google Fiber and stuff around Raleigh and all those areas. So there are people who have the 50 and the 100 megabit upload speeds. This shows that almost nobody had 25 megabit upload speeds. Uh, and, you know, and so, you know, it turns out that students everywhere are facing this problem. If you're not on fiber, basically this chart says if you're not on fiber, you're having this problem that we're talking about. The fact is your upload speeds are limited. So. Uh, but that, that's the end of my presentation, and we're going to go on. There's my information, by the way. I write the uh, blogs, Pots and Pans by CCG, and if you haven't heard that by now, I uh, would uh, tell you to read it. In fact, today's article talks about cable company uh, data speeds, so that so happens. Um, I'm going to pass the, the uh, microphone on here to... I don't think I have to pass, do I have to pass it? I have to pass this on to Gene. And to do that, I think I might have to, this might be a challenge here. Let's see here. Because my, ah, oh, there we go. My little box just got very tiny. I have to find how to make it big again. All right. I guess I want to keep this as me, don't I? I'm sorry, Gene. Can you speak now? 
Yeah, I can certainly speak. Oh, very good. Then I just put my slideshow back up. Sorry for my my technology hiccup there, folks. No. <laughs> All right. So now you know. So now this next slide, Gene wants to talk about, and then we'll pass it over to Mark. Go ahead, Gene. Sure. Um, thank you, Doug. One one thing is, as I was listening to Doug's presentation, it it struck home in in several ways, and one is uh, Doug. One of his early slides mentioned the challenges that uh, many people are facing in our country now, uh, trying to work from home. And I've been on more than one uh, web conference and meeting with people that are in other areas. And I've literally had two individuals at two separate times tell me that they would have to ask their spouse, who was also working from home, as well as their children to get off the internet long enough for them to complete the web uh, meeting uh, just because the internet speed was not enough to support all the different de devices. And that goes to what uh, Doug was talking about early on. Uh, I work with the city of Wilson and we are fortunate to have a fiber to the home network here. And we did a little study just out of curiosity early on. And then we went back and did some follow-up uh, about broadband speed usage on our, on our network. And what we did is we did a baseline of looking at February and what the average use on our network was in February of this year, which was before the pandemic struck and people were still pretty much uh, normal routine. Kids were still in school. People were still reporting to their various offices and jobs and they're not started working from home. And then we looked at it in April here in Wilson just to see if there was any change in the usage um, uh, broadband uh, capacity, uh, just out of curiosity, really, at first. And we found some interesting trends. So if you just look at trends from February of this year to April of this year, um, we, we did some spot checking through the days this, to see uh, what these figures would come up at. But 9 a.m. in the morning, people were using 3% more inbound traffic uh, in April than they were in February. But outbound traffic, which goes to what Doug was speaking to a little earlier, jumped by 23%. So at nine o'clock in the morning, people were using 23% more, percent more uh, outbound uh, data. Then at noon, inbound data increased 10% over what it was in February, but outbound jumped to 44% more. And I think uh, Doug's slide may have shown an average nationwide of something like 58%. Um, three o'clock in the afternoon, inbound traffic was up 14% over what it was in <laughs> And outbound traffic was 45% more. Now here's something interesting at 6 p.m in the evening, inbound traffic dropped 21% less in April than what it is typically in, in February and outbound by 11%. Um, we don't know what would cause it to actually drop then unless everybody's, uh, everybody's cooped up together, they decide they're gonna eat dinner together, get off the computers all at one time, who knows? But it was interesting to see that at 6 p.m. that had dropped. All right, but then when you get to 9 p.m., inbound traffic jumped back up 12% in April over what it was in February, 
where his outbound stayed pretty flat. Um, so who knows? Maybe that's the time that, uh, as far as inbound traffic, maybe people are download doing a little recreation as a family, downloading a Netflix movie, playing some video games, whatever. But uh, outbound traffic was actually higher by 12% at 9 p.m. Uh, in the evening. We then looked at a longer tr uh, term trend, uh, which if I won't go into a whole lot of detail at this point, but we looked at it from February all the way to October. And we saw the same things that we'd seen in the earlier study, um, which was a steady increase in both inbound and outbound traffic uh, by time of day. Uh, we did start to see some tapering uh, in the late August, early September timeframe. Uh, it's still much higher than it was back in April and still much higher than it was back in uh, February. But we don't know if that could be attributed to some people who have started to return back to work in the, and you have a slight number of people that are now back in their offices. Schools did open up um, somewhat um, and there's a mixture here in this county of both in, in classroom and uh, virtual learning going on. So be kind of, kind of interesting to see what the trends are gonna be in the future and maybe we can share that on a future webinar. The other thing that I saw and it's not conclusive yet, but I wanna throw out just for the fun of it, is maybe a tendency to work shift a little bit. And that was actually something that uh, I also had read an article on. Uh, some, some individuals in, in different parts of the country have literally had to do a work shift in terms of if both the individuals are trying to work from home and the internet connection is not adequate to support it, they are, um, one person may work, you know, eight to 12, and then the, the other spouse will work from 12 to five, and then they just try to split up what capacity that they've got in order to get their jobs done. And I also am curious to see if we, as a nation that are, uh, those of us who are working from home are actually shifting our hours. It, some preliminary data looks like we may be, as individuals, starting a little later in the morning, but working later into the evening. But uh, those trends are, 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 it's way too early to tell, but just out of a curiosity and for fun, that is something that we're gonna track. So that's what, Doug, that's what uh, we had in the real world scenario of looking at what you had presented and then comparing that to our network just to see, and, and, and our network is supporting the trends that you, that you uh, pointed out a little bit earlier. Thank and you, with, Jane. And with um, that, I think uh, we want to pass it to. You want to pass it to Mark, who has a very interesting presentation. <coughs> and uh, Mark is our newest member on our board. Mark, if you'll take it and run with it. Yep. So for um, just for the other panelists, I'm going to try and finish up right around it's a, around 11:25 to give us a little bit of time because I know we've had a couple of questions come in. So I'm going to kind of crank through this relatively quickly. But for everybody, just a, a just a little bit of introduction to who I am. Um, uh, I am the technical manager 
for OFS. We make fiber and cable. Um, originally from Georgia, I've been around the industry, the fiber industry now for about 30 years. I've worked for Corning, uh, OFS, and, and AFL, uh, or Corning, AFL, and OFS. I'm coming to you from a farmhouse in eastern North Carolina. And for those of you who are familiar with eastern North Carolina, I, I like to say that I'm from the greater Bath metropolitan area, which is not a, not a huge place. Um, and then I overlook beautiful, beautiful, ta beautiful Tankard Creek. But um, I'm also connected and very thankful to the people from River Street for my, my fiber connected farmhouse. Um, also, just a little bit of additional background with OFS, I help people build networks. And I'm uh, also a member of the Fiber Broadband Association, which is a fiber advocacy organization. And I'm a long term mem member of the Technology Committee, as well as just someone on the the board of directors um, of that organization. And so from here, uh, enough about me and you're gonna head into the, you know, just the discussion. Did want to highlight <laughs> that a lot of these slides came from the technology committee of the Fiber Broadband Association. You know, we've been studying uh, demand trends and upload trends for a while. And um, yeah, I'm gonna basically say, you know, I very much agree with uh, a lot of the trends that, you know, I that Doug highlighted a little bit earlier and will provide a little bit of color. Uh, and also, you know, I think the Doug kind of gave this in a similar, uh, similar statement, but ultimately we're gonna need a bigger boat. And so, you know, you look at the, the, you know, the trends with upstream traffic, and this is from Sandvine and they, Sandvine is a company that monitors internet traffic for individual service providers. And so they can look and see um, you know, what kind of traffic is going over networks and they show, you know, just a clear increase in, um, you know, both up and upstream uh, traffic mainly um, due to the pandemic. And then you can see also a little bit of stabilization, but clearly, you know, once we hit the pandemic, um, upstream traffic more than doubled. Um, so Doug, if you could uh, head on to the next one. So the use of video conferencing has more than, than doubled. Um, and then I think the slide or the, the quote to the right from Robert Crandall from American Airlines is pretty telling. You know, a third to one half of business travel you know, will go away and more meetings will take place electronically. And um, you know, I think there are gonna be, you know, there will be some permanent changes that come out of the pandemic in the way that we do a number of different things. So certainly business travel uh, as well as um, uh, you know, I know I'm actually pretty excited about the concept of telemedicine. I'll talk about that in a little bit, you know, because I live about a about a mile or about a an hour from my um, uh, you know my medical provider. Uh, next slide. So as we start extrapolating trends in the future, and this is where I think it it did gets kind of interesting. We're getting a little bit futuristic with these next few slides, but um, you know. This is starting to extrapolate what happens, uh, you know, down down the road. So, uh, Doug had mentioned that we've seen just a tremendous amount of bandwidth increase. I think he said you know, roughly 25% per year for you know for a very long time. The next couple of technologies that are you know they they haven't um, you know fully entered the uh, the general public realm. But we're starting to see them bubble up. One is uh, virtual reality; the other is tech, uh, is augmented reality. And both of these, um, you have the potential to transform play, learning, communications. Uh, head to the to the next slide. Um, so this, you know, the last one looked at VR. This is you know augmented reality. So basically, and you know, a lot of you may have seen the Pokemon um, uh, app that went around, where basically you had. 
uh, you know, you were chasing characters, uh, you know, on a, on a screen. And so, yep. Uh, and so there, there are a lot of different applications that um, the, con the combination of both virtual reality as well as augmented reality may um, begin to, to take place. One of the ones with virtual reality uh, that to me was just stunning was I'm a, a big tennis fan and I went to Wimbledon a couple of years ago and they had a virtual reality display um, in the Wimbledon Museum where basically uh, you put on a VR headset and all the you know all of a sudden you were on the front row watching you know a Wimbledon match and I realized at that point you know as we get the bandwidth and as we develop more of these technologies you know we will potentially have a front row front row seat to basically any event around the world at any time which to me I thought was just you know that was kind of mind blowing to me and I think we're a little bit early with that but um, you know if we start to extrapolate trends over the next uh, the next several years, then absolutely, as the bandwidth becomes available, we are absolutely going to find ways to to fill it up. Uh, next slide. Yep. So you know we're going to start to to summarize and pull all of this uh, together. Um, this is a slide from ABI Research, and they're just highlighting different applications. And Doug did this a little bit earlier, but the ultimate message here is we are gonna need a lot more than we currently have um, based on a lot of the very interesting technologies that are coming down the pipeline. So, you know, our, our title here is gigabit symmetric speeds will be required and you could see a lot of the different applications. Uh, let's head forward to the next couple of slides because we'll get into a little bit more depth with all of these and then we'll start to, to summarize. So these are some slides from, from Calyx. And so, um, you know, at the Fiber Broadband Association, we're, you know, we have members of, uh, you know, around 250 members of all different types. So service providers, uh, equipment providers, uh, you know, my company makes fiber and we all get together and we, um, you know, and we help to advocate for uh, you know, fiber optic solutions. But um, Calyx is a, a member and they had put together just some some estimates on what they see for the demands for various applications moving forward. And so the next few slides will go through that. Um, so digital video, you know, 4K, you know, it's really tough to actually buy a TV that's not 4K uh, enabled. So if you can head back um, to that real quick, um, you know, 4K, and then we're at the very beginning stages of seeing 8K TV. So if you go out to Best Buy and look around, you will see 8K TVs that are really not that expensive. We're, we're at the beginning to not have a lot of content, but um, still got an opportunity for, you know, you know, I think that's going to be, uh, we're going to start to see a lot more content in both 4K and 8K over the next several years. So if you uh, continue to slide through, um, you know, they're crowd gaming. These are internet over, uh, you know, the internet of things, applications for different demands for different items, digital doorbells, uh, home fitness, um, you know, all, just all different types of things. And head to the next slide. And so, you know, this is where we start to see the impact of virtual reality as well as augmented reality. And, you know, those are some pretty big numbers. And then also, you know, telemedicine, although that's a, you know, that's a relatively low um, uh, bandwidth requirement number. It's a very high impact. And so if you could head to the next slide and we'll start to, to um, you know, just put this all together. So what we did as, as an organization is we had a number of people from the technology committee uh, get together and we looked at what the bandwidth requirements would be for a family of four and extrapolated those over the next 10 years. And basically we took, 
you know, X number of streams times X amount of bandwidth per stream and start, <coughs> started to make some estimates. And you can start to see that, especially as some of these technologies begin to come online in a bigger way, you know, the demand curve absolutely, uh, you know, begins to increase, you know, pretty dramatically. Uh, with you know, with you know, potentially even outstripping gigabit types of speeds as we start getting a little bit later in this decade. So the one thing about this and one message is that, you know as you're planning and you're you know, advocating for your areas, just keep in mind there you know there is still a lot out there that um, you know we're in no way shape or form at peak bandwidth yet. So heading to the next couple of slides and then I think we could take a couple of questions. You know so fiber to home and I'm an unabashed fiber advocate. Um, you can see that the fiber to the home speeds are pulling away um, you know, from a lot of the legacy technologies. And that's, you know, we really uh, expect that, you know, especially against um, the copper and, and cable and, you know, and wireless. Uh, they just have inherent limitations that fiber doesn't have. And so that's, you know, fiber is, you know, the one that can scale, um, you know, pretty much immediately where a lot of the other ones really have some, uh, some trouble. So next slide, and then that'll wrap it up. So in general, fiber customers are typically uh, a little bit more satisfied. So you look at, and this was a, you know, the broadband experience index, which is put together by um, RVA associates and the Fiber Broadband Association. What we're trying to do is really look at the overall experience of broadband users. So the upload speed, the download speed, the latency, reliability, uh, and just, you know, how does that compare technology to technology and just, you know, overall um, fiber as, as one would expect really, um, you know, does very well there. So I think that's all I had. Um, and so maybe we, we've got a, a few minutes for, for some questions. We do. We have until noon, and if oh, uh, we so have until noon. I didn't realize that. I thought we were at eleven thirty. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks for going quick. It was still clear, yeah. and if you have more to add, you know, we can we can make time for that, Mark. Um, if folks want to turn on their video cameras, Gene, Mark, and Doug, that might be a nice way to run this part of the session. I'm trying to figure that out. Okay. There it is. Ah. Hey there, Doug, we see you. And uh, while Mark and uh, I think and we just are passing it around like we did earlier. Yeah, I okay. think we have to do that. Uh... So uh, you may have to hand your host credentials over to Mark and Mark to Gene like we did last time. Sorry, the settings were a little askew when we set this meeting up. All right, Mark, you're the host. But thank you. I want to pull your picture up. Yep. And then hand it over to Gene. And while they're doing that, I just want to read a comment that can kick the questions off because I, I thought it was great from Don Melton, who's working from home and multitasking during this presentation while she's ultimately connected via remote access to a corporate network. She's subject to her home Wi-Fi connection in rural Stanley County, North Carolina. She has one Echo device, one iPhone, and her computer is currently active. And she got a message on her computer said low system resources may affect your audio quality. Trying closing some applications to improve performance. It just underscores everything that you all said in your presentation is happening in real time among our audience. Um, and with that, wanted to start with the question 
seems like the FCC is failing us in this regard, i.e. ensuring reliable service on the upstream side, given the outgrowth, out, uh, given the growth, the bandwidth requirement uh, outlined in your presentation, is it time to restructure our paradigm? Should we make broadband a regulated utility? And maybe several, several of you all can take a stab at that one. Well, I'm gonna go first because that's actually three questions. <laughs> um, first off, it's time for the FCC to re-examine the definition of broadband. I mean, 25.3 is so far behind us. If you go back to one of my early slides where it said that, according to the FCC, if they really believe that 85% of the people can get 250, 25 broadband, then it's really insulting to all the people in rural America to say, but you only can have 25.3. For you, that's good enough. The answer is, if, if, if almost everybody can get something, that should be the definition, right? And so, unfortunately, for that, unfortunately, the FCC's own statement was incorrect because it turns out that most people in cities are not getting the 25 megabit upload on their cable networks. And so, so that you know, turns out that's not even a true statement. But, um, but it's definitely time for the FCC to do it. It's been a political hot potato because what's happened? The last two FCCs did not want to increase the speed. And this is for pure politics. And it's not, it's not Democrat Republican politics, it's politics of the FCC looking bad. An FCC that increases the broadband speed, let's just say they change it from 25.3 to 110. Everyone who has speeds less than 100 megabits overnight will be declared not to have broadband any longer. And so all of a sudden they're gonna go, we went from 14 million homes without broadband to 40 million homes without broadband. No FCC wants to be the one to say that less people have broadband. And so they've been very reluctant to increase the speeds. And I don't know that a new FCC is gonna get over that. We'll just have to see. So, um, so that, uh, that's my take on the first half of the question. We could be here for three days talking about the regulated utility. I think it, personally, I think it's too late for that. There's too many people like uh, like Gene's company around who've already invested in fiber. We can't put them back into a big regulated box at this point. You know, they've, they've spent too much money on it. I think, we, I think we're too far along the path to regulate it personally. Uh, and I say that as someone who is very deep into everybody's numbers. Uh, the numbers are really hard to make that work. But uh, that's my take. You two, I'm sure, jump in. You must have opinions on this as well. So. I, I agree with Doug. I started my career in the, in the 70s in a, in a totally regulated environment. And I do not think we could ever go back to that for many, many reasons. However, I think some regulation uh, in, the, in the sense that the minimum standards are set and there's regulatory authority uh, behind those standards to make sure that people comply. I can think we could go down that path. I don't think you'll ever go back to having monopoly territories or anything like that. But uh, I do think some regulation in, in the sense of, of reinforcing standards would probably be something that could be explored. But I'll, I'll toss that out on the table for the other panelists too. Yeah, so for me, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a pass on the question. Um, you know, I'm primarily a technology person, and so when we start getting into regulatory issues, then I'm gonna. There are certain places where I uh, can potentially weigh in. There's certain places where I I can't, so I'm gonna take a pass on this question. Yeah, and, and I went first because regulation's my bailiwick. So that, yeah, I'm, I have lots of opinions on it. <laughs> <laughs> 
for the next question is a technology question. Given the overhead often found on applications or Wi-Fi, do you all have any thoughts on speed test measurements and the efforts underway to use that data for determining what areas have broadband? Would speed test underreport the actual speed to the house? Um, let me go first and then I think Mark probably has a different take on it. Speed tests are deceptive for one really big reason, especially not on fiber. On fiber, speed tests are actually pretty accurate, but both DSL and cable modem technology, most companies employ something called burst. And they don't really talk about it much. But what, that, what they do is, if you go to download a speed, a, a file, if, if you've ever done a big file and watched your speeds, it goes fast for one to two minutes and then it slows down. And so what that means is, the cable company or the, or the DSL providers giving you fast speeds for a short period of time, and then it falls back to slower speeds. And that's actually adequate for 95% of the things you do. If you want to look at a web page, boom, you get there, right? But it raises the big question. If, if, I, if, I think, if I do a speed test, I'm only getting the burst speed. So in my house, I think I have 135 megabits per second. Three minutes into it, I have a speed of 50 megabits per second. The fact is, in the long run, if I do a long event, I don't have that first speed. That first speed has been deceptively hidden by the burst. So I think speed tests are very deceptive on those technologies because they disguise the actual broadband speed. This was proven better than anyone by Microsoft, if you recall, three years ago, did a nationwide comparison of, of speeds they actually saw because you know they are the best person in the whole country to measure real speeds because people download giant software updates. And so what they saw, they said, here's what the speeds are after the burst is over. And they said that only like 20% of the people in the United States had speeds over 25 megabits per second. You know, it, that's probably closer to the real truth. So it, it's a speed tester deceptive, but yet they are comparative. You know, if, if I look at neighborhood A, B, and C, and I, and I see a difference in the speed test, that tells me something about the quality, so. And also, yeah. Um, yeah. also Doug, one thing that, that we, we see here is when people do speed tests, it also depends on which site they're going to the test. And then the other thing we run into is that um, the customer may have a, a uh, wireless router that is actually uh, basically throttling his speed back because maybe it's an inexpensive router and they'll call us and say, well, we're supposed to be getting, you know, 100 megabit. We're not getting that. And you go out and check and they're getting, they are in, indeed getting the 100 megabit, for example. But by the time it goes through that router into their PC, maybe it's only showing up at 30 or 40 because that's all the, the uh, older router was made to pass. And of course, we'll work with them to, to correct that. But so it's a lot of factors in, in that um, that come to play. Yeah, and I agree with 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 what both of you have said. I mean, I think it can be used as a um, uh, kind of a gross gross tool, not a very precise tool. Um, but um, you, know, you know, specifically in my in my house, you know, and, and in all houses, um, you know, there can be a, a big difference between what actually hits that house versus you know what hits whatever device is being used for that speed test wherever that speed test is and 
um, you know, you get into, in addition to, um, you know, some of those, what those guys highlighted, I mean, you've got the, the frequencies of the, the, of the routers, you know, is the microwave oven on, you know, all of the, you know, all of the stuff that, um, that goes with it. So I think we, we really have to be careful um, with, you know, with um, not, um, you know, relying on that information or at least not um you're giving that a it has to be treated appropriately with the appropriate amount of weight and the appropriate amount of caveats and now with that said what i've noticed um is that if you study a whole lot of people in a neighborhood then you start to get a picture so it's pretty good for that it's like gee nobody's getting 25 megabits ever that's that tells you something right so that so it's good for that it's not so good for any individual house at a given time but if enough people take it it sort of averages out to tell the story so great thank you we've got a couple of questions looking for your insights on different technologies uh, maybe starting with mark what are your feelings about low orbit satellite speed compared to fiber to the home Yep. So a shout out to Denise. I saw that you, you asked the question. So hope, hope you're doing well. And, and thanks for the question. It's a very, it's an interesting question. Um, because, um, you know, so if we're, we're looking at low earth orbit stuff, you know, specifically Starlink, um, you know, it's, there, there's been a lot of just a lot of information about that. And I think overall, it's got, you know, it has some capability to do certain things. So there'll be certain things that it can do well and certain things that it, it won't do well. And I think um, at least from what I've heard from what the Starlink people have said, they've represented that reasonably, reasonably well. So where it can, where it really can be appropriate are in those areas where, I mean, you really don't have very much bandwidth at all. And so, you know, one, um, so, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere and, and, um, and beyond just standard rural middle of nowhere, then um, yeah, that can make a lot of sense. Um, but one of the things with uh, you know with Starlink is each one of those individual satellites has a limited amount of bandwidth. And I, if you ask me, a couple of weeks ago I could have told you exactly what that number is. But um, but it's you know it's not a huge amount of bandwidth in order to support a you know a decent amount of subscribers. And so. Um, you know, so what it can do, you know, it can, you know, it will be able to do some things, but if you start to look at it as a potential replacement for, you know, certainly, certainly for fiber, you know, it just, it's going, ultimately, you're going to run into the same types of issues that you run in with other capacity limited technologies. And that, you know, there is an inherent amount of capacity that's got as soon as you have a number of customers on that capacity, you're going to start to blow that out. And so for, for that reason, it's, you know, I, you know, I don't really see that as being a long-term, um, just quick solution to the bandwidth requirements that we have. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's got its place and, and for certain people, it's really gonna be um, very helpful. But overall, you know, I don't, certainly don't see that as a replacement for, you know, typical rural fiber to the home um, types of applications, just because it is not going to hold up. Um, you know, if you look at some of the earlier, um, you know, some of the earlier speed tests that came out a few months ago, I mean, they looked pretty abysmal. Some of the numbers that we're starting to see now from some of the stuff that's more recent look, you know, looks a little bit better, but still these are on almost completely empty networks. 
networks. And so as those networks start to increase, then, um, you know, the capacity of those satellites, you know, is going to, to begin to, to bog down. So um, hope, I hope that, uh, you know, answered the, the question. One other thing is that the, the Fiber Broadband Association is putting together a, a paper specifically to address that. And we'll go into, into that detail, you know, and, or in, into that in a little bit more detail. And I just want to throw out one or two facts that the, the recent speed tests are showing download speeds of 50 to 100 megabits per 150 megabits per second, bouncing in that range. I agree with, with Mark that as those networks get full, those speeds are likely to come down, not up. So, uh, but if you have no broadband, that's a wonderful product. I mean, I don't want to downplay how great of a product that is if you don't have broadband today. Uh, there, there's a whole lot of people in North Carolina who would kill to get 50 megabits per second. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's certainly got its place for the next 10 years. Uh, it's not a fiber replacement, but you know, if you don't have any broadband, you know, we can't wait forever to get your fiber. You got to get something. So I, I think it has its place immediately, assuming, assuming he can launch jillions of more satellites. I mean, his problem is to get enough satellites in the air, but that, you know, that's a different issue. So. Gene, did you want to respond to? I don't think they've covered it. Okay. Well, perhaps anticipating your responses there, Mark and Jack, we did have a question and, and kind of a comment. Some rural, some areas, rural and mountainous areas cannot make the financial case for fiber. Our only avenue for funding is grants. Um, half the Connect America Fund has not been productive. RDOF is not looking better, they say. How do we get the FCC on board with fiber to the home? Well, that's a regulatory question. RDOF is interesting because they're giving out such a huge amount of money, $16 billion this round, but it wasn't given out wisely. Some places are getting more money than they need. There's places in the Midwest. I've actually looked at a county where the amount of RDOF being offered is more than the amount that it costs to build fiber. And then you go to the mountain areas of, of Appalachia where I live here, and it's not nearly enough money to pay for it. And that all goes back to the way the FCC decided how to allocate the money. And so, you know, they, had, they used this old ancient cost model and they said, here's what it costs in various parts of the country to build broadband and that model is just terrible. And so it, it overstated the nice cheap plains and it understated uh, mountainous areas. And so going forward, they can do a better job, you know, I have not heard almost any politicians right now who don't have the word broadband in their first two paragraphs of talking. This pandemic has gotten everybody's attention. We're gonna to have to wait a year and see if that stays that way. But if this stays as part of the national conversation, there will be more future grants. And if those future grants are done with the goal of getting rural fiber, they're gonna to have to be done differently than the reverse auction and differently than that cost model. But there's, a, you know, we can look at state grant programs who do a fine job of that. So, so you know, they just need to change the way they're handing the money out. Uh, but if they're willing to hand out the money, then we can solve the problem. But it, it's going to take huge amounts of billions of dollars to get it. There's no, no other solution. Um, th there are communities in Appalachia who have found grant money to build fiber. It's just really expensive. And so, you know, it's, it's going to have to be done you know, one county at a time with big piles of money. So it, it is doable, but it's going to take a lot of federal help. So, but if you if you think about it, Doug, to to your point, I mean, what was Appalachia like, uh, say, in the 1920s, 1930s, 
before the federal government got behind uh, being able to electrify those old areas. Right. The, right. The, the, the cost for building a electrical grid is a lot more expensive in mountainous areas, but we did it. So it's just a matter of commitment and putting the money towards it and understanding broadband is the next utility that people are going to have to have in order to be able to uh, compete in today's environment. Well, interestingly, Gene, the amount of money per household to put the electric grid in, in terms of the, of the value of money then before all the inflation over the years was much higher per household than what it cost to do fiber. That was an incredibly inexpensive undertaking back in 1920. And so the federal government threw a lot of money to get electricity. And if they would not have done that, rural America wouldn't even, Appalachia wouldn't exist. Exactly. I mean, and, and they need to do the same thing. They need to say, this is basic infrastructure. And we're, no, we need it. So it's just yep. a commitment, making that commitment and going forward with it. Right, right. So we got another question about the uh, main topic of this webinar, um, upstream capacity. And I just want to encourage folks to check out the chat. A number of our audience members listed out um, the speeds that, that they um, are experiencing where they are right now. And that'll be fun for y'all to look at. But the question was, what are some potential solutions to increase upstream traffic capacity? Well, easy answer is fiber. <laughs> I can steal Mark's thunder, but the cable companies obviously have most of the customers. And so we really have to talk about them, right? Uh, interestingly, the wireless technologies that we're now starting to deploy in the rural areas can do nearly symmetrical speeds. It's just they, they can't do gigabit speeds, but you know, those technologies, you can set the upload anywhere you want. And so, the, you know, anyone getting on wireless can get some fairly decent upload speeds. The cable companies have had the capacity to do almost five or six times as much upload ever since 2006, and they've just elected not to do it. It's a very expensive upgrade for them. There's, there's things called the mid and upper splits where they can use different additional parts of their spectrum and increase the speeds. I, in fact, that's what my blog was about today. I forgot, it wasn't because of this uh, webinar, that just happened to be what I talked about. They have to spend a lot of money to do faster upload speeds and I just don't think they're gonna do it. Now, a few of them might and they might all surprise us. I'm thinking they're hoping that a year from now when the pandemic's over, we're all gonna forget about it. Uh, Cause I, you know, that's a lot of money for them to spend for no additional revenue. And so, you know, I, I don't see them doing that. The fact is they could, they could give people 100 megabit upload speeds. They have the technical capability today without any changes in specifications, but they have to spend money. They have to, they have to fix a whole bunch of the parts of the network, the components, and, you know, I just don't see them doing it. So I could be wrong, so. So, yeah, so Doug stole my thunder, but I'm going to add a little bit more to it. Um, yeah, you know, ultimately, um, you know, once, once you have fiber, then that becomes so much less of an issue than it is anywhere else. And I've got a slide that I often show when I'm giving presentations, and it lays out um, just the generations of wireless technology. So 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, and now people are looking at 6G. And then all of the cat this and cat that, you know, just all of the generations of technologies that, that are happening. And once you have a fiber, um, then all you do is you just change the stuff on either end and you're done. And um, so we are actually in the beginning stages of 
you know, so uh, from, and this is getting a little bit technical, but the, the protocols that we use for a lot of networks are called passive optical networks or PONs. And PONs started out um, with, and there's, there's, there's an alphabet of them. So A PON, B PON, G PON, and they, they go on. And some of the very first um, PON networks that were put in place had a total amount of bandwidth of 622, you know, 622 downstream and like 155 or something like that upstream. And where we are now as, um, and we're beginning to see the movements uh, around the country is a move to XGS pond where we go from, uh, you know, so we go from, or we're going up to 10 gig symmetric uh, and 10, or, you know, 10 gig symmetric, which is 10 gig upstream and downstream split over 32 subscribers but the, the main point about that is once the once the infrastructure is in place you're basically just replacing the stuff on either end and the conversation is over mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gene anything further to add no I, I fully agree with with Mark's comment that's the, the wonderful thing about the about a fiber network is is how quickly and easy it is to upgrade it you don't have to do constant overbills. Well, and we got the comment and amen on making the investment of fiber to everywhere. Desktop, this person's experience is 9425 at his office. Um, wasn't true for some of the other uh, audience members. And I realized that the, the whole audience couldn't see some of those numbers, but they were a lot smaller. Um, Doug, could you share which state grant programs have been most successful in incentivizing the build out of rural fiber? And I'll just add, I'll be going over the couple of webinars that we have coming up and we do plan to dedicate an entire webinar to grant programs next uh, May. Um, and we do have a recording of a, a session we did this summer where we covered that topic thoroughly, but go and take a stab at that question. Yeah, the, there's about a half a dozen, no, maybe a dozen that do it right. And, and, and as opposed to the, the way the FCC is doing it with a crazy cost model, states that do it right, you actually give them a proposal you go get an engineered estimate. Here's what it's going to cost in this neighborhood to build fiber. And then they give you 40, 50, 60, 70% of that amount of money, depending on how well they're funded, right? So that, the kind of programs where they actually fund very specific costs for very specific homes, those work. So Minnesota was the very first grant program that did it that way. But there's a, because they were first, a whole lot of the other states literally just copied their grant program. They're like, why should we reinvent this? They, they did a good job. And so the, so the difference is it's a cost-based filing. Here's what it cost me to build these 100 homes, these 1,000 homes. You know, here's how much money I need to do it. How much grant can you give me? And so it's a cost-based grant. And so that's, that's what it takes to get the math right. The, R, the RDOF is not math-based. It just happens to be a number that came out of a crazy model that is too high in the plains and too low where we live in Appalachia. So. Okay, thank you. A uh, question from someone else, fixed wireless networks, which ones provide symmetrical speeds? Again, they're capable of doing symmetrical or almost symmetrical. It's a matter of the ISP deciding to do that. Every ISP, except for fiber guys, fiber guys can just give you symmetrical. All the other technologies have to make a choice. They have to go I can, I can put this much, and they can only do one or the other. If they put it on download, then it's not usable for upload. So most of them are electing to do download because can, people complain about download more. And so they put most of the bandwidth on download. 
they could split it. They could give, they could give you more upload than download. They just don't do that. So the fact is, if you go for any radio built past about five or six years ago, those, those networks are capable of symmetrical, but very few of the ISPs are gonna be willing to do that because you know, as much as we're, this seminar today is about download speeds or upload speeds, if you cut the download speeds, then the houses complain about that because we have exactly the same problem for that side of the house. <laughs> uh, so it's a tough, it's, it's hard to be an ISP with those technologies. Gene or Mark, any comments on fixed wireless? Um, not too, you know, not too much. It's just, you know, it comes back to a lot of the same stuff. With fixed wireless, ultimately, you know, it's got to be fed by something. And ultimately, you have to feed it with enough capacity to get to get there. And in order to feed it with enough capacity, you typically have to have fiber there or you have to have a lot of spectrum. And so, it, you know, it depends on where you are. In some rural areas, spectrum may be a little bit less expensive and you could potentially feed you know, with wireless spectrum, but in a lot of places, that's really not that, um, uh, you know, it's not that practical. And so you end up, you know, having to bring fiber there anyway. And then, so now you're, you know, in order to deliver speeds, you have to be you know, reasonably close to the house to start with. And then you run into all the situation, you know, run into all the attenuation things um, and the things that, you know, just cause the signals to degrade. So, you know, we come back to a lot of it. It's, they are, um, you know, there are technologies that, that can work um, in, but they inherently have limitations, especially as, you know, the demand for bandwidth is continuing to rise. And I just want to point out, looking at the, at the comments, Denise Fry and Candler has AT&T fiber and she has 300 in both directions. Some people are lucky. <laughs> depends where you live. Mark just said it. It depends where you live. Yeah, and, and getting back to fixed wireless, we got one more question. It seems like current grant programs give priority to fixed wireless. Does it have a long-term future? The problem with fixed wireless is the radios only have a six to eight year life and you have to keep replacing them. And so a lot of these grants are giving the money. And again, the people are glad to get it. So I don't want to talk badly about it because if you have no broadband and someone brings you 25, 50 or 75 megabit download, that's wonderful. But is that ISP going to have enough money seven years from now to swap all the radios? If they don't, you're going to be, you're going to be stuck on that radio for a long time. And over time, it'll get worse and worse. And yeah, so, if you, so yeah. It's, it's the keeping up with the technology that's, that's expensive. And some WISPs are very well funded and they will do a great job. Um, you know, the FCC did a wonderful job this year. They gave out like six new pieces of spectrum to rural broadband, which means they're going to be able to get faster and faster speeds. It's not, un, it's not unthinkable to do 100 megabit on rural wireless uh, now with those new spectrum bands, but, uh, but it still takes the money to keep up with the, the cost of it. And some ISPs will do great at that. Other ones will fall flat on their face. Because uh, an awful lot of the guys who do that for a living are not very well funded, so it's 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 again where it depends where you live and who your wisp is. So, yeah, yeah. So two you know, two two things to add to that. Um, one is uh, Fiber Broadband Association will will have a paper addressing that. Um, we're in the final stages of drafts um, for that, and it goes through and talks about that in a lot of depth and you know the pros and cons. Um, but one of the issues with fixed broadband overall is if you compare it with from a total life cycle cost standpoint. Um, it just, it, it doesn't compare. 
because you know and back to doug's comment i mean you you ultimately you've got to continue to upgrade it the the radios have you know certain you know lifetimes and so there there have been studies that have been done that look at that and you find that just over the lifetime of the network um it, then uh fiber is going to turn out to be less expensive now, one of the comments i see is from jesse day who has one and a half megabit upload and i'm curious if he was able to stick with us the whole time because that's just on the fringe of of having this thing hard to work so yep well in the spirit of that comment um and and the overall uh content of today's session we got a question the impact of social media on growth of technical facilities and i guess more expansively just participating in online um you know upload speed is related to folks ability to you know participate um, in work and school and society. So, um, but anything you'd like to specifically say about social media growth? I completely agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I think any, anything where you have people that are communicating and they're communicating, especially with higher and higher resolution video, then you know that is going to continue to, to drive bandwidth growth in, in all different directions. Absolutely. And, and to your point, Mark, uh, someone just commented that this presentation worked for them with 1.5 megabit upload, but I had to ask my wife to turn off her camera. <laughs> right. Exactly what we had mentioned earlier. Yep. You can do one thing at a time. Yep. Well, folks, this has been absolutely terrific. And we're now at the top of the hour. I wanted to um, let our audience know about our upcoming webinars. Um, but first, just wanted to thank all of our panelists very much and wanted to thank Greenlight, our sponsor for the event today. Thank you, Jean. Um, on January 19th, we'll have a session, Broadband Technology, What's the Difference Between Fiber and Wireless? So I've got a few questions about that today. Join us on the 19th of January to hear more. On March 23rd, what models are communities using to deploy broadband? a lot of questions about that too and we'll have um, some presenters that are out in the field um, building those networks uh, at the community level and then on may 25th how to fund a broadband network grants and loans so there'll be a fresh crop of um, answers uh, from our presenter deb um, to, uh, add on to what she offered this summer and please do check out our previous webinars on our website nchartsgigabit.com and send us any questions that we didn't get to to our email at info at nchartsgigabit.com we'll be happy to take those again so i'm krista vinson and on behalf of the entire board of nc broadband matters it was great to join you today thank you thank you everybody. Thank you.